we've got good news. We've got a, just spoke with Speaker McCarthy, and we've reached a bipartisan budget agreement that we're ready to move to the full Congress. Much to the relief of the entire world, watching as the United States stands near inches from the cliff's edge of historic default. President Biden announced over the weekend that he and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have come to an agreement on a deal to raise the debt ceiling. It takes uh, the threat of catastrophic default off the table, protects our hard-earned and historic economic recovery, and the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If the deal passes Congress, and that's still an if, because Republican hardliner Representative Chip Roy of Texas called the deal a, quote, turd sandwich, and Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington objected to the fact that the Biden administration even allowed the GOP to use a potential default as leverage in the first place. So, if the deal passes Congress, the agreement would most immediately suspend the debt ceiling until January 2025. So what did the threat of crashing the American economy actually yield? What's in the deal? Well, there are some clawbacks of IRS funding and unspent COVID relief funds. There are new requirements for some food aid. Also, non-defense discretionary spending will be flat next year which means that funding for domestic programs across the board, except Social Security and Medicare, will stay the same next year. They will rise by 1% in 2025. The caps are a major Republican priority. The deal also sets six years of appropriations targets. However, those targets are not enforceable. Not everyone has to belt tighten, though. There's no rollback on tax cuts for the richest Americans or corporations. Meanwhile, the deal would also raise the defense budget to $886 billion next year. So all in all, it means that total government spending over the next several years, after all of this debt ceiling wrangling, is likely to be nearly exactly what it is today. So, Michelle, first of all, I I know that government budgeting isn't like a family's budget because, of course, the government can print its own money, right? But, Michelle, humor me for just a minute here for a second, okay? (laughs) Because if, if a family came to you, right, and said, Michelle, we need to control our spending, we've got a brand new budget for the next couple of years, and here's our plan. We're going to spend the same money on food, the same amount of money on food. Inflation be darned, okay? We're not increasing our budget for food. But we're also, because we need it, we're going to buy that brand new, top of the line, 2025 SUV that we've always wanted. Would you say, oh, bravo, American (laughs) Family X? You've, You've done well. You have mastered the art of budgeting. 
Yeah, I would not, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there is a lot of comparison to what's happening to the federal government and to personal budgets, but we do need to make the distinction. Um, They are different. Um, And there's some things that the government is responsible for and should be responsible for to help families stay above the poverty line or not sink below it. With the family, of course, you don't buy that SUV. Of course, you cut out things that are not necessary. But even with the family, there are things you just can't cut. The cost of the roof over your head and the food on your table. And so that's why a lot of families are struggling because they can't cut that. And then they end up cutting things like maybe instead of three meals a day, they have two or they send their kids to school hungry. And so while we do need to chastise the government for its overspending, we have to understand it in a lot of ways they're doing the same thing that many families find themselves in the position of doing, which is trying to make do with what they have. Mm. Well, of course, everyone knows Michelle Singletary because we lovingly call her one of our money ladies. <laughs> Most often she appears <laughs> with uh, Rana Fruhar on this on our show. Michelle's also the nationally syndicated uh, personal finance columnist for The Washington Post and author of many books, including What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, A Survival Guide. So, Michelle, it's really great to have you back on the show. And... Um, You know, there I was trying to, like, throw you a softball about our chance to be cynical (laughs) about politicians. And you had to make it all real and serious on me. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny because people say that all the time. And, you know, when I've been been writing about the debt ceiling and people will say, well, the government, they must cut. Except when you really ask them, but don't cut me. Don't cut the stuff that I like. Um, And that is why we've got where we are. Um, Certainly, we need to have a balanced budget just because we can't keep issuing debt to pay our bills. But right now, you know, just after a horrific time for personal health and wealth being the pandemic, this is not the time to say, you know, those poor people over there, they don't need any more food. We need to cut that. Um, Or other programs like that. We must be more generous to people who are just surviving and perhaps look at other places where we can cut. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about some of the uh, proposals that are in the 99-page uh, deal here with, you know, the big asterisks that, as I mentioned earlier, there's some noise coming from uh, both hardliners on the right and the progressive caucus on the left. So this isn't a done deal by um, by any measure just yet. But what do you think of um, some of the changes that we see here? For example, um, changes in SNAP, right, the Supplementary yeah. Nutrition Program. So for folks between the ages of 50 to 54, um, mm-hmm. and I believe these are these would be particularly people who do not have children, um, mm-hmm. there would be new work requirements added to their SNAP eligibility that they would have to work 20 hours a week to receive aid. You know, on paper, these kind of proposals always make sense to the number crunchers, right? Well, they're healthy adult, they should be working. But 
you know, if you've ever worked with the poor, it's much more complicated than that. And I will have to say, to characterize people as if they're lazy and they just want to, you know, um, suck off the teat of the government, is it correct? Because a lot of times people aren't working for a number of reasons. Like in that age group, perhaps they're taking care of their elderly parents. There are a lot of home uh, caregivers who chose to stay out of the workforce so they can take care of their elderly parents who don't have long-term care um, insurance or or benefits. Um, perhaps there's some mental health issues. There's some health issues. Um, you know, maybe they live in a rural area where they can't get to a job. Sure, there are a lot of jobs out there, but do you want to be 50 or 54 trying to, you know, work, you know, in a restaurant busting tables? I mean, you've got to look at it, the totality of what's going on. And, and, and I have never met, and I work in our communities. I have been doing this for a long time. I have a ministry at my church. So I'm working with people that they're talking about. And not a single person has ever said to me, I don't want to work. I just want to get money from the government. Not a single person. There are reasons why they're not working. And and, and we want to this is where we want to draw the line to not give people money so that they can have food on their table. That is the line when we know that during the 2017 of uh, tax cuts, we gave tax cuts to the wealthiest of Americans, the wealthiest corporations, they get a break. But a person who's 50 who may be taking care of their parents at home can't have enough money to put food on their table. Mm. That's the line. Mm. You know what also um, I'm not clear on is how effective it's going to be, right? Let's just let's just accept the the goal for a moment to encourage you know more people to work. But I'm seeing here um, numbers from the Census Bureau itself. This is from the American Community Survey. They published uh, some results uh, back in 2020, right? And they mm-hmm. found, this is from the Census Bureau, that more than three quarters of families, so these are at least multi-person households, three quarters of families um, receiving SNAP benefits had already at least one person working. And two thirds of those families already had two or more workers. So like, I'm just not sure how many... Um, working, you know, uh, able-bodied aged 50 to 54 single Americans receiving SNAP out there, we're talking about even in terms right. of who aren't working right now. So, like, it, I'm not sure how effective the the notion is even going to be. It's not effective. And what it end up happening is if it, those, you know, folks that do fall into this category, um, they end up going to food pantries, they end up going hungry. Um, uh, and, and that's really what ends up happening. It doesn't, it's not effective. And even, you know, when we looked at welfare to work, that sort of push for even single mothers who are at home or single dads are at home, we found that a lot of reasons why they weren't working, you know why? Because they couldn't afford childcare. Mm. <laughs> And so you're saying, yes, go out and get that job making minimum wage. And all of that wage is going to go to take care of that kid that you have to put in daycare. And so let's and and, and I already know people are forming their 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 tweets and their emails saying, well, they shouldn't have had the kids in the first place. You know what? That is too late to have that argument. The kids are here. The parents are here. Let's figure out how to help them and give them a, a lift up. Mm. so that they can provide for themselves. Yeah. You know, and this number of how many people are already working while receiving uh, SNAP benefits, it's, it's pretty consistent. There's another study I'm hearing, seeing from the Center for Budget uh, Priority and Policy and Priorities, and they found the same number. Three quarters of adults who participate in SNAP uh, 
are typically already working. I mean, so what does this tell you overall? We've just got a minute before our first break, Michelle, uh, about um, the financial situation of America's working poor. I mean, what left do they have to give um, in order to help the federal government be more responsible with its budget? They, They don't have much left. They don't. And a lot of them are working jobs. They're working at jobs, paying low wages, long hours. And a lot of their money, they're not wasting their money. A lot of their money goes to also housing. So what goes hand in hand to the food crisis is the housing crisis. And that is what's happening. And these type of cuts don't help them. Mm. Well, Michelle Singletary is with us today. And we're talking through how what's in the debt ceiling deal If it passes Congress, we're talking specifically about what's in it and how it might have an impact on you as an individual person and family in this country. So more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today Michelle Singletary is with us. She's the nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post and author of What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, a survival guide. And we're talking uh, about what's in the debt ceiling deal that was uh, struck this weekend between President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, again with the... uh, the caveat, the asterisk, that it still has to make its way through Congress. So, uh, Michelle, as you know, the United States has never defaulted before. So we wanted to just go back in time a little bit and and remind ourselves of what this history is um, that led us to this point, because the national debt increased under every presidential administration since Herbert Hoover. And in the 20th century, the debt ceiling was raised at least 90 times under various administrations. But of course, as you know, that does not mean that politicians haven't flirted with disaster before. The last time was just a dozen years ago. In the final days before a deadline to raise the nation's debt ceiling, many Americans wonder if there's any way to prepare for a possible default. So that was 2011, and the circumstances then were also similar to what we're seeing today. The Republican Party had won the House in January of that year, and they used raising the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip for spending cuts. President Obama came to Congress in January and requested business as usual. He had another routine increase in the national debt, but we in the House said, not so fast. 
Here was a president asking for the largest debt increase in American history on the heels of the largest spending binge in American history. Right now, the House of Representatives is still trying to pass a bill that a majority of Republicans and Democrats in the Senate have already said they won't vote for. It's a plan that would force us to relive this crisis in just a few short months, holding our economy captive to Washington politics once again. President Barack Obama and then House Speaker Republican John Boehner there. On July 31st, just two days before the so-called X date, President Obama announced that the leaders in both congressional chambers agreed on a deal. Over the next two days, the House and Senate voted to swiftly pass the Budget Control Act of 2011, which raised the debt ceiling by more than $900 billion. But the story didn't end there. For the first time in the history of the ratings, Standard & Poor's downgraded the United States credit rating late Friday. The agency said it is cutting the country's top AAA rating by one notch to AA+. That announcement came on August 5th, just three days after President Obama signed the Budget Control Act of 2011. Standard & Poor's said, quote, The downgrade reflects our view that the effectiveness, stability, and predictability of American policymaking and political institutions have weakened at a time of ongoing fiscal and economic challenges. They went on to say, We have changed our view of the difficulties in bridging the gulf between the political parties over fiscal policy, which makes us pessimistic about the capacity of Congress and the administration to be able to leverage their agreement this week into a broader fiscal consolidation plan that stabilizes the government's debt dynamics anytime soon, end quote. Before the weekend, no one knew what a downgrade would mean. Now we know all too well a day of sheer panic on Wall Street. The global sell-off started in Asia, Tokyo down 2%, the selling increased, London down 3%, and finally, the massive tsunami of selling hit New York. The Dow down almost 6% at the closing bell. The worst day for the stock market since the height of the financial crisis, capping a run of two weeks, racing almost $2 trillion in stock market wealth. The average American 401k investor losing more than $16,000. In fact, between July 21st and August 5th, 2011, the S&P 500 lost almost 10 percent. And when you compare the peak and floor of that year, from April 29th to October 3rd, the S&P dropped by 19.4 percent. Now, the market did recover during the fourth quarter, jumping about 15 percent then. But 2011 taught us that even without government default, the economic anxiety caused by the political divides and political gridlock can have a direct impact on the market. Now, Michelle, you've actually written about this. So tell me, I mean, do you see parallels between 2011 and today? Oh, absolutely. Same problem, same political drama. Um, you know, it, it, they bringing us to the brink does not help uh, calm people down. In fact, as we saw with the stock market, it panicked people and it panicked the global markets. And, and, and really, we need to understand these should be two different discussions. Mm. The debt ceiling, you know, and I'm not a debt person. So you're speaking to someone who hates debt. Um, but, you know, but that's one conversation. And the budget should be happening when we're doing the budget negotiations. What we're talking about right now is paying for bills that we have already 
obligated ourselves for. Mm -hmm. So that's like you're saying, I owe you $100, but you know what? In a couple of months, let's renegotiate the fact that I owe you $100. You know, no, we should be having that conversation at the beginning before I gave you that $100. And so that's why the markets are saying, wait, wait a minute. You guys are mixing these things up. And what ends up happening is it helps regular people, people who have money in their retirement account. Now, if you've got years to go, this will shake itself out and it'll even out. But if you're close to retirement or about to retire, like my husband, you know, this is a terrifying time because this is the money that you're going to live on in retirement. And you're seeing these idiots negotiate these things and as if we are not real people and they're real consequences for taking us to the brink of default. Mm. Well, I mean, in when you wrote about the, the market impacts, you cited some Gallup data that uh, 43% of Americans are doubtful that they're going to have a comfortable retirement. So these are real concerns for a vast number of people. Yeah. And so it's 43% of non-retirement adults. Now, here's the interesting thing about that study, but it also showed that more than 70% of, uh, actually 77% of retirees say they are actually living comfortably. So there's a disconnect between Uh the reality and and people's fears. But here's why fear can change things, because if those 43% of people say, I'm not going to have a comfortable retirement. It makes no difference whether I save for retirement or not, mm. even though it does. And so fear keeps people out of the market. Fear makes to make changes to their retirement account that is going to help them down the road. So we knew going, for example, during the Great Depression and other times like during 2011, people pulled money out of the market because they like, I can't take all of this up and down. And they often don't get back in. And so they don't benefit for when the market is, you know, when the market historically lifts. And that is my concern, that it will scare people out of the market. It will scare people to pull money out of their retirement when they should leave it alone. Now, if you're in retirement or near retirement, you need to have some money to live while these things shake out. So you're not going to lose all of that money. Um, So you need to leave it alone, except for the portion that you need right now. And you may take a hit, but that's okay because you do need that money to run your house. But again, you know, the fear factor will have people making choices that have a long term detrimental uh, impact on their ability to live comfortably in retirement. Mm. Well, in fact, uh, on this question of what to do with retirement funds during this period of political uh, fiscal um, volatility. That's what I'm going to call it, political fiscal volatility. Um, We got a call from On Point listener Tom Hauser, who listens to the show from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, Actually, he left us a message on the Vox Pop app. And Tom asks, what effect will not raising the debt ceiling have on investing for retirement? If Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling, will individual taxpayers be able to purchase government bonds? Will my Vanguard retirement fund be able to invest new fund contributions into U.S. government bonds, or will those contributions just sit in the fund as cash until this crisis is over? Michelle, do you you have a guess on that? 
Well, I don't, it, it, and lots of people have been asking me about not just the government bond, well, government bonds, but savings bonds and yeah. things like that. You'll still be able to, I believe, buy the bonds and see, that's what I'm saying. So there, there was a, a reader who said, well, should I cash out my savings bonds? No, you don't cash out your savings bonds. And yes, you should still buy government bonds. They're still um, the safest investment that you can, because we will get through this. It, even if there is a default, my, my prediction, it won't be very long. I'm not even saying it's going to happen anyway, but if it does, because things will be so horrific that that hopefully, and I need to be watch my language because mm-hmm. don't <laughs> get us in past. trouble. Michelle. I'm not going to get you in trouble, <laughs> but you know those folks up there in Washington who are disconnected from the rest of us will hopefully sit down and come up with something that will end it soon. So I would say no, don't fear. Um, doing what you would normally do in terms of having bonds as part of your investment portfolio. Mm. But, you know, over the past several years, I think I've used the language confusing economy or economy that doesn't make sense or, you know, even what you just said about disconnect. Because uh, as you wrote uh, in your column, Michelle, I'm just going to quote quote you because it's pretty smart. You say, Yes, the government spends uh, more than it takes in. Yes, we need deficit reduction. But at what cost to the financially fragile uh, and people trying to glide into retirement with some assurance that their investments won't be derailed by political grandstanding? And then you say, this should be a period of relief. Inflation is coming down, unemployment is low, and workplace retirement accounts have seen a decent surge in recent months. Should be a period of relief. But I mean, are people feeling that way? Absolutely. I hear from them. I I put a shout out to my readers and people were saying, and, you know, I'm scared. Am I going to get my Social Security check? Should I invest? Should I cash out of my savings bonds? I mean, my savings bonds. I've had people ask me, should I pull money out of the bank? Where would you put it, honey? No. And so this is a real fear. And 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 think about this, you know, you know, especially for those near retirement in retirement, you, you know, if you're not going to continue to work. This is all the money you have left. And you can understand why people are scared. Mm-hmm. And I feel like all this political um, brinkmanship doesn't take that into account. And and look at even the deal. The deal doesn't really even move the needle. In fact, in a couple of places, particularly as it relates to, to um, the uh, food uh, uh, benefits for folks and also pulling back money from the IRS. That is the most idiotic move. I mean, think about it. That's like decimating your sales force if you're a business because you know what? Because you're dumb. I mean, the IRS collects the, you know, the vast majority of money that runs the government. Why, for goodness sakes, would you cut their budget? And that, you know, $10 billion or whatever they're going to cut, you know, is going to improving their technology, hiring more people to help um, uh, taxpayers, and going after people who are tax cheats, which brings in money to the government. Tell me how that makes sense. I mean, I think the the answer is in your question, right? <laughs> in, in terms of in terms of political goals here, but but you're right. I mean, the deal um, takes 10 billion from the IRS from uh, for the fiscal 2024, and then another 10 billion for fiscal 2025. Um, and this is uh, this is from I think the there was an 80 billion dollar. Uh, uh, 
overall IRS funding for the next 10 years that was in the Inflation Reduction Act to do exactly what you're saying, to go after tax cheats uh, and modernize the IRS. Uh, but I mean, I suppose the the thinking there is that what we've heard from Republican lawmakers, that they feel that the IRS is unfairly going after people for political reasons, Michelle. I mean, that that's one of the uh, the justifications that's been offered several times. Yeah, and we've debunked that time and time again. Um, the Washington Post has great fact checkers, checkers, and we've debunked that time and time again. The majority of the money is going to be used to upgrade their their systems. The majority of that money is going to be used to hire people to work on your tax returns, to help make sure that it, they get done and processed fast. And if you have an issue that you can talk to a human being, the majority of those funds are going to be going after people who should be paying their taxes and not just, you know, regular people. We're talking, you know, people who owe, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, lots of businesses and, and things like that. It's not going to be some taxpayer knocking on your door and taking your furniture. That is not what's going to happen. And anybody who's ever had an interaction with the IRS in, you know, the last how many years, and I have, it's extremely frustrating. The system is, I mean, it's, oh my goodness, it's like having a, you know, a deck player, you know, in your car, you know, a track in your car version of a system. And, 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 you know, I talk to folks at the IRS all the time. I talk to the people who work there and they are overworked. They're overtaxed, pun intended. Um, And, and so that's what the money's for. And, and, you know, listen, I understand that we have, you know, political differences and philosophical differences, but some of the things that are going on right now being pushed by the Republicans is not in the interests of regular Americans. It's in the interest of them keeping their seat um, and their lobbyists happy. Mm. Well, by the way, folks, uh, if you have a specific question for Michelle, you can uh, hop on social media. We're at uh, On Point Radio on Facebook in particular. Um, and uh, you can ask a question of her there and I will forward it to her during uh, during the show. You know, um, Michelle, the, the one thing that we one of the many things, but I think the most important thing that we haven't touched upon yet is what is not in the deal. Okay, because if we're really talking about um, and I know how much you hate debt. Right. Uh, But if we're really talking about getting a a hold of government spending and having a balanced budget, not that it's required of the federal government. I just want to say that over and over again. It is not required of the federal government. It's required of the states to have balanced budgets. But the federal government, it's not, um, you know, an absolute requirement. Nevertheless, it has been done and we can do it. But the biggest drivers of federal spending, Michelle, are not part of this deal at all. Social Security, Medicare, not part of the deal at all. People don't like those programs to be uh, cut or reduced or modified. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, the Defense Department, without even asking, gets an increase in its budget for next year. So, I mean, if, if, if the United States is going to do anything to balance or reduce federal spending, how can it do it without touching those three things in particular? 
Well, I can't speak to a lot um, to the defense budget, right. and and nor would I want to. I'm I don't follow those numbers enough to 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 offer an opinion that would be worthwhile, other than to say, obviously, we need a strong defense, um, particularly as it relates to what's happening in the world. And I'm thinking Ukraine. Mm. Um, but when it comes to Social Security and Medicare, of course, we need to look at how those programs are run. Not necessarily Social Security, but definitely Medicare. I mean, we need to do a better job of making sure that. We are, you know, that the healthcare costs are in line so that if there is some cuts that won't affect the beneficiaries, that we make those cuts. I mean, you know, buy drug costs. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do that is not directly related to the, the, the those programs, but things that increase the cost of those programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like using the government's power to negotiate down prices is what you're saying. Exactly. Right. So, Michelle, exactly. hang on here for just a minute. Much more to talk about when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Michelle Singletary is with us today. She's the nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post and author of What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, a survival guide. And we asked Michelle to come back on the show today to really help us connect all the talks that have been going on in Washington over raising the debt ceiling and the deal that uh, has been recently hammered out, though yet to pass Congress, uh, and how what's in that deal may affect individual Americans. So, Michelle, let's talk a little bit uh, about student loans, right? Because for the past several years, due to the pandemic, the Biden administration uh, had suspended student loan um, payments. That's going to have come back uh, at the end of this summer. The administration already announced that, but the the, the debt ceiling deal does nothing to change that. So people were going to have to start repaying um, their student loans after a really long pause. So tell me what you think about that. I think it's going to be a financial shock for quite a few people. Um, I think there was a percentage of people who were smart. They either took the money that they would have been making and saved it and to, you know, anticipate perhaps getting some sort of debt relief. But if not, then they can then put it on their loans or they use the money to pay down other higher expensive debt. Um, Or they continue to make their loan payments so that they could have you know, interest-free loans for now more than three years. That was me. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I'm not stopping this. (laughs) Exactly. And so, and then there's a lot of people who just incorporate their money in their lifestyle. Um, They didn't sort of think that this gravy train was going to be 
gone, you know, sooner than later. Uh, and it's those folks that I worry about because they've now gone accustomed to not making those payments. And then when they restart, it's going to be a shock to them um, and their budget. And I worry about them because then what they'll do is put it in deferral. Mm-hmm. Or, or some sort of forbearance. And when you do that, um, and it's not subsidized by the government, then the interest is packed onto the interest. And so then you're paying interest on interest. And that's how someone who starts out with $20,000 in student loan debt, next thing you know, they owe 50000 And I, I've met folks like that. I've counseled people like that. They they had the student loan debt, and they started their families, their life, and they put it on forbearance or, or deferral. And, you know, a debt that started off like fifty is now like dollars Seventy thousand or two hundred thousand dollars because they spent a decade not paying on this debt. Mm. Um, and the fact is, you're gonna be in repayment by the end of the summer. Yeah. So you need to start now making those payments to yourself and putting them in the savings account, or going go ahead and put them on the loan so that you can still take advantage of a couple more months of not having any interest. Yeah. You know, I just it occurred to me that I might have come off as sounding a little smug when I was like, I just kept repaying mine the past <laughs> three years. Didn't mean to be smug because I also want to acknowledge that I was lucky. I mean, I kept my job during this whole time. So, so and many, many Americans did not have that luxury. So yeah. I want to acknowledge that. And then also, so, you know, I've uh, when I uh, started having to repay my student loans, it was a long time ago. <laughs> Interest <laughs> rates were a lot lower and I got locked yeah. in at a really low rate. So so those are my my qualifiers there. I didn't want to sound smug, but but yeah. but you're but I also to your point, I was like, wow, well, I'm just paying off the principal here now. So I might as well just keep doing it. Um, but right. so you, what you're advising people, because this is coming in just a few months is right now to start putting money away in order to absorb the shock that's going to come? Is that what you said? Um, absolutely. And I didn't think you sounded smug, by the way. I think you sounded smart. Um, and it's okay to say I smartly did this. But yes, I believe that you should start paying those loans now as if they have are coming due. Because a couple of things will happen. So now let's see how it works in your budget if you're in that group that just ignored it and said, you know, I'm going to enjoy this while I have it. So practice it now. See how it impacts your budget. It will give you a couple of months to figure out how you you're going to do it? What are the changes you need to make instead of waiting until it happens? So perhaps you incorporated new expenses in your budget that you now have to cut. Perhaps you're in a situation where you need to change your housing. Maybe mm. your your lease is coming due and you can't pay that rent or that mortgage with this student loan debt as well. Um, and so now you're going to have to figure out something different. Um, you know, in my ministry, we're working with, you know, a couple who just has you know, they drank our Kool-Aid because we teach them how to get out of debt. <laughs> and um, the, their their monthly payment is going to be like $1,300 because they spent so much time just sort of letting the debt roll. Um, and so now they're making a lot of changes, cutting stuff that, you know, the, one of the, the, the part, the spouse is getting another job and they're doing that now, even before those payments start mm. so that they're in position to restart those payments and it won't devastate them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're making a really important point, Michelle, because this is all coming as uh, we've, we're seeing higher inflation than before the pandemic, rise in food costs, rise in housing costs. Uh, and so to add back on the student loan repayment uh, that people are going to have to do is, go- is going to be tough. So on that point, we actually got a... Uh, 
uh, a listener who wants to talk about housing. This is John Irvin from Los Angeles, California. And John left us a message again on that Vox Pop app. Um, And he asks, what could this moment mean for the cost of housing? I live in a big city, and the rents here are already ridiculously high. I'd like to know if failing to raise the debt ceiling will impact the cost of housing and make it even higher. Michelle, do you see a relationship there? There could be a relationship, yes, particularly if some of those landlords have variable rate mortgages uh-huh. on those properties. Um, those the, That cost could go up. Um, now, the Fed has been fighting inflation, and so they've been raising the interest rates. If they if they see that inflation has stalled and the, the downward push has stalled, they're going to have another rate increase. And then if you've got variable debt, either of a variable rate mortgage like an arm, or you're trying to get a new mortgage, or you um, are using your credit, you know, credit line, it's going to cost you more. And guess what they do? They pass that on to renters and consumers. Mm-hmm. So yes, it absolutely could impact that. And say they, they, you know, they have money in the market and they're using some of that money and, and the market tanks, then that can impact you because when one part of someone's portfolio or, or finances is impact, then they look at other places where they can raise money. And guess what? That might mean raising rents. Mm, okay. Well, you know, Michelle, what I'm wondering about overall is, you know, again, we are having this conversation as a a deal has been hashed out between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But who knows what's going to happen in Congress? My days of betting on political stability are long, long over. So what should people be doing right now? Uh, First of all, is it wise to just continue to prepare as if uh, a deal may not be reached or passed in Congress? And B, if so... Uh, what? How should be people be preparing? I think you should prepare as if a deal won't be done, because this Congress is crazy, and you know there <laughs> there are people who are so disconnected, as I said before, from yeah. regular people that they will take us to default and and be damned otherwise. Can I say that? Or you're not going to get in trouble if I say that. But, too late know, now, dear. Too late, I'm so sorry. I went there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we just ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> and so here's the thing. And this is how I run my, my finances personally anyway. I always run as if we are in a recession because that way you're always in battle mode. Um, not out of fear, but just out of, uh, out of caution. And so right now I would be curbing any unnecessary if you've got a major project that is not a necessity, put it on hold because you might need that cash. You might, you know, there might, there could be job losses. If the market tanks, I mean, there, it, it just, it could be catastrophic. So you want to make sure that you've got a good cash cushion um, if the worst happens. And the other thing I would do is check in with your parents or older relatives who might be relying on Social Security. Um, you know, I, I believe that everybody's going to get their money eventually, but if the worst happens, we've never been here before, but if the worst happens, checks could be paused. And you got to check in with them to see how will they handle that. Do Are they in need and be prepared to help them or other people mm. in your family that might be in um, that same situation? Um, contact your lenders. Um, the moment anything happens that may impact your ability to pay your mortgage or your car note or even your credit cards, 
Contact your lenders. Many people never make that call to say, I'm in trouble. And so you want to be prepared to do that psychologically and just do it. Let them know you're in trouble. And then for your investors. Wait, wait, can I just jump in here on the on the lenders sure. one? Because that is mm-hmm. one where I think people people may come to the to the table and be like, Well, I don't think that the bank or the credit card company right. is gonna do anything, so why bother? Right? So when you when you contact your lender, you get on the phone with them and you have to like, you know, go through the phone tree to find a human. Right. Presuming it's a human and not AI. I have to say that all the time now. But you right. find a human. What specifically do you tell them? I mean, how when you say contact, what should you what should you say? That's actually a great question. So you say, listen, I am in jeopardy of losing my job or I've lost my job or they've cut my hours. I cannot make this payment this month. What can you do for me? And oftentimes what they'll either say is, okay, you can skip this month or let's put you on a payment plan or let's pause the interest that is accumulating. There are all kinds of things that they can do and they have done. During the pandemic, lots of lists. When you went to, your, I know this for a fact, when I went to my the site for my mortgage, right up there in sort of like red box, it was like, if you're in trouble, call us and we will work with you. Um, and they did it during the Great Recession. Sometimes they have to be made to do it, but a lot of times they do it on their own. Um, and, and the same thing with your mortgage. And if you're renting, tell your landlord, hey, this is happening. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get a positive reaction every single time, but everybody I've counseled to do that got help. Um, and so you just tell them the situation. Be honest. Don't promise what you can't. If you've lost your job, you got no money in the bank. Just say that and say, listen, I'm doing the best I can to get a job. I'm going to contact family members. I'm going to try to, you know, cover. can you give me a month or two um, to, a break until I get myself situated? Mm. Um, and at least you've made that you've opened the line of communication and it What it also does is it may pause them taking legal action against you, give you a little bit of, you know, reprieve until something happens. But you should just call and be honest about your situation. Okay, great. And you've you've also said that uh, that in times where a lot of. of consumers are being um, are, are feeling the impact of decisions in Washington. Those are times where banks are more likely to be to be willing to help. So that that absolutely th- and that could be coming. Now you were going to say something about one of your other recommendations of how to prepare now, and that's about saving and saving and investing, because in your column. Um, you quote Moody's Analytics and their report this month, where they say. Even without the specter of a debt limit breach, many CEOs and economists still believe a recession is dead ahead. Yeah, yeah. We were already possibly on that road if we're not already on that road. Uh, I don't want to hear it. (laughs) I know. But, you know, any push towards a default or taking us right up to the 11th hour could push us right there. The very thing that we're trying to avoid, they will make happen and they will make it happen unnecessarily so. And I am so angry because it, it, I mean, we already have people worried. We already have high inflation. We already have people barely being able to afford their rental mortgage. And here you are making this decision based on debts that we are already obligated to pay. This is not new debt, y'all. And so that angers me because I work with these real people. I know what they're going through and they don't. And it and they shouldn't be doing this right now. And so your brain, people's brains will want to flee and shut down. Mm. They won't want to save. They won't want 
want to keep their money in the stock market. And that in the long term will uh, hurt them. And so what I try to tell people is, and I try not to say don't panic, that it's just a worthless phrase because why wouldn't you panic? But don't act on that panic. Don't pull your money out. Don't pull all of your money out. Pull out what you need, but don't pull it all out and continue to save. And Fidelity Investments, which is one of the largest providers of workplace plans, looks at retirement savings habits and analyzes the data. And and actually, 401k millionaires grew the last two months, the last three months. Hmm. And so that's saying that these folks who have worked on average 28 years putting into their 401k are are million are millionaires because they didn't panic during these type of times. So take a lesson from them, which is why I continue to report on that. It's a small portion of workplace retirement. It's only like one percent or less, mm. but they they show us the pathway to that millionaire status by when times like this happen, even the most horrific times, like possibly pushing us into a fault, they stay steady. And that's how they become wealthy. And so that's the lesson that I'm telling you all. Don't panic. No, I said that. I shouldn't say that. What I say is panic. (laughs) I just said it, right? (laughs) So don't panic, but don't act on that panic. That's what I was trying to say. So, you know, feel what you need to feel. Scream if you need to scream, but don't act on that. Mm. And that is how you'll get through this. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting about those million-dollar 401ks. I'll just add that pre-tax, right? (laughs) Because when folks take it out, they got to pay tax on that. But um, but in all honesty, maybe it's because I'm still quite a ways away from retirement. Given the way the economy is going and costs and stuff, that doesn't that, that actually doesn't feel like enough or a lot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, and, and, and to your point, when you look at it, you have to look at the fact that you do, you know, maybe on paper you're a millionaire, but when you take it, you know, take into account taxes, but it's still more than most people have. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot. More. I mean, the average balance is like what? Under $200,000. Mm-hmm. And so if you, you got to sort of appreciate yourself and pat yourself on the back if you are in that position where you have that kind of money in your retirement account. Um, my grandmother, uh, retired on Social Security, a very small pension, and twenty thousand dollars on the in the bank. Wow! And when she died, she had twenty thousand dollars in the bank. And so it's possible to live on that million dollars. And so if you are in that category or getting close to it, rest assured that with other things like with your Social Security payments and and having your house paid off before you retire, you can live a comfortable retirement life. But the key there is, uh, again, because you hate debt, pay off all your debts before you pay retire. Off that debt. Yeah, don't be like the government. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist at The Washington Post and author of What to Do With Your Money When Crisis Hits, a survival guide, which feels like all the time now. But Michelle, yeah. thank you so much for coming back to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure always. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.